It says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we thank thee for this evening. We thank you, O God, for safety and travel and coming here, for the liberty that is ours to meet as a company of your people, to open the scriptures together, Lord, to do so without fear of attack or molestation. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege. And uh, Lord, it is a privilege. It's a privilege, Lord, that many in this world do not share. And we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who must uh, meet in dark corners and must meet underground and uh, out of sight. And uh, Father, we just pray for them tonight. We think of those who are caught up in uh, situations of persecution and we ask your blessing and help would rest upon each brother or sister tonight who's facing uh, such difficulties and trauma in their in their lives and their testimony but father we ask tonight that you bless us as we meet here help us to understand this topic to understand the subject to realize its importance and to see lord how this is a help to us in understanding our bible so we ask these things in jesus name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Amen. A number of years ago, we were in an oversight meeting in one of the churches that I pastored, and uh, the oversight came to a particular position on something or other. We were going to uh, put a proposal to the church, and uh, we'd all agreed this is the tact we were going to take, and uh, this is the particular circumstance we were going to head toward. And uh, anyway, it came to the church business meeting. We teased it out with the church family back and forth. People asked their questions. We answered the questions. And at the end of the evening, it went to a vote. And the vote went like this. All in favor, please raise your right hand. Most people raised their right hand. Uh, All against, please raise your right hand. And one person raised his right hand, and he was one of the deacons. (laughs) Which left me in despair. I thought, what in the world is he doing? Why is he voting against this whenever we had agreed it together in an oversight meeting? So after the meeting was over, it was one of those, the pastors making a beeline for you jobs. And I went straight to him and I said, so-and-so, what were you doing? Why did you vote against the motion? He says, well, I wasn't against it. I was for it. But I just felt it wasn't right to have a 100% vote in favor. And that was his logic. That was the kind of agreement. That was the kind of thinking he had. And, uh, you know, it seems that's certainly true when it comes to most theological arguments. As with many theological ideas, the concepts of dispensationalism... Uh, are not without their critics and their detractors, principally, although not exclusively, by those who hold to the so-called covenant or reformed theology position. And in that theological position, adherents primarily hold to one of two, co- or to two covenants, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of works refers to uh, a supposed covenant that God made with Adam and Eve before the fall, in which God promised them blessing upon, contingent upon their obedience uh, to his command. And then after the fall, the fact that God continued to promise redemption to those who had violated the covenant of works, well, that's defined as the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace is seen as the one governing principle that exists in our relationship with God from the fall of Adam right up until the end of time. 
Now, it is true to say that in every time period, God has shown himself gracious to sinners. There's no question about that. Adam was certainly the beneficiary of God's grace, as are we. The problem we have, though, is this. It's not any suggestion that God is eternally gracious. That's not a problem. But the problem we have is that there is a covenant of, uh, of, of works or indeed a covenant of grace, because the Bible says nothing of those covenants. I mean, quite literally, nothing. If I were to pin you down and say, show me where God made this covenant, show me where it's explicitly stated, you would struggle to show it to me, because it simply isn't there. And that's in contrast with those covenants that are specified in Scripture and detailed in Scripture. The Noahic covenant. Every child knows that the rainbow was given as a sign of the Noahic covenant, that God would not uh, judge the world cataclysmically by flood again. The Abrahamic covenant comes up again and again. Chapter 12 of, of uh, Genesis, chapter 15, chapter 17, and on through the Bible, all the way up to Hebrews chapter uh, 6, the Abrahamic covenant is referenced. The Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant is there and clearly detailed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. The Davidic covenant, very clearly given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise that there be one who would rule and reign on the throne of David uh, forever. And then the new covenant that appears in the book of Jeremiah, in which God promises that he will replace the stony heart uh, of the flesh uh, with, a, with, a, with a regenerate heart, with a heart that is spirit-filled. Uh, so there's no, there is no covenant of grace, nor has there ever been such a thing as a covenant of works. Uh, covenant theologians emphasize that God has the same redemptive purpose throughout history and that his dealings with men have always been and only been since Adam through the covenant of grace. Dispensationalists, as I say, have no issue with the place and the importance of God's plan of redemption or the significance of grace throughout the history of man. But remember, we believe that God remains the same in every age, but the house rules change from period to period. It's not that God changes, but the house rules change. The responsibilities for men are different at different times and in different ways. They're held accountable. So we saw that last week when we looked at the seven dispensations. We saw that each one brought with it a cycle of responsibility and then failure followed by judgment. And that's what we saw all the way through from the beginning, from the dispensation of so-called innocence all the way through to the kingdom age. So covenant theologians don't seem to get this. And they don't seem to uh, be able to embrace it or to somehow get their head around it. And so they cast stones at the dispensational system. Now, understand, these are both theological systems, okay? Both of them are systems. One is not uh, supreme over the other in the sense that one is God-given. Uh, both are means and ways in which men have approached the Bible and said this is the best way to interpret the Bible and God's dealings with man since the beginning of time. But because covenant theologians don't grasp dispensationalism or are 
lazy. And I do think they're lazy many times about dispensationalism, that they really don't want to learn about dispensationalism because they've got a bias that is instilled in them from Bible school. Uh, they're taught in their Bible classes that dispensationalism is wrong, it's to, be, it's to be avoided at all costs and all the rest of it. And so they come and they level stock criticisms and charges against dispensationalism and dispensationalists, which are either the consequence of honest misunderstanding or of maliciousness in theological debate. So tonight I want to consider with you some of the criticisms that would come our way as dispensationalists and to consider what we might say in response to these criticisms. And the first criticism that you might hear is that dispensationalists have more than one way of salvation. Now, as <clears throat> if to complicate matters for you, there, are, there is a, a very small minority of people who would be described as hyper-dispensationalists. And certainly hyper-dispensationalists would speak about being saved by works or being saved by baptism or being saved by grace uh, and so on. But that is not classic dispensationalism. And that is not what we believe, okay? So as far as we're concerned, as classic dispensationalists, salvation has always been and always will be by grace through faith in the Word of God. Salvation has always been, is, and always will be by grace through faith in the Word of God. And because we believe there was a dispensation of law, it doesn't follow that we therefore necessarily believe that men were saved by the keeping of the law. There has never been a law given. This is New Testament teaching. There has never been a law given that could bring about salvation. It simply can't be done. And that's the whole tenor of, uh, of Romans chapter 3 and 4. We don't have time to read all of that tonight, but uh, we'll touch on it perhaps. But, uh, you know, that's the whole tenor of those two chapters that, uh, you know, if, if, if it's by law, then it's no more by grace. If it's of works, it's no more uh, by grace. And so Paul tells us that the purpose of the law was to act as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That was his goal. And he says, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now here's the thing. The new birth and salvation by grace is not something that is exclusive or monopolized by the church age. This is something that even people in the Old Testament needed to understand. Under the law, people needed to be regenerated. They had to be born again. People have always needed to be born again. The new birth was taught to Nicodemus, and Jesus taught it to him when? under the dispensation of the law. Remember, the dispensation of the church age doesn't begin until the day of Pentecost. So prior to that point, uh, anybody that you're dealing with is under the dispensation of the law. And Nicodemus is living under law. That's the governing principle, the governing function of the age in which he lives. And the Lord Jesus marvels at him, marvels that he, as a master of Israel, as a teacher, as a rabbi, did not understand the new birth, didn't know about it. Art thou master of Israel and knowest not these things, was Jesus' incredulous question. You know, he says, you know, humanly speaking, of course he knows all things, but humanly speaking, it's like he said, I can't believe I'm even having to teach you this. You should know this. The new birth is not something 
that has just sprung up now in John chapter 3. The new birth is <coughs> <excuse me> something <coughs> that belongs to all men of all ages. They had to be born again. And so the fact of the matter is that people in New Testament times, or Old Testament times, sorry, were saved by grace through faith in just the same way people in the church age are saved by grace through faith. Now, albeit they didn't have all the revelation that we had, but they had to respond to the word of God as given to them, and they were born again. Look in Genesis chapter 6 for a moment, and we see that grace is the, is the operating principle in the salvation of Noah. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Very simple little verse, not hard to understand. It says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, a hyper dispensationalist will say to you that Noah was saved by the building of an ark. That's nonsense. He was physically saved by the building of an ark, but spiritually he was saved by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 4 for a moment. Think about another uh, figure from the book of Genesis, the figure of Abraham. Genesis chapter, uh, Romans chapter 4, sorry, where Paul makes references to Abraham. He says this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted on to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And he goes on and references David. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity or sin. So Abraham was saved. Uh, by grace uh, through faith, as was David. Uh, Moses, likewise, the, the very man who's uh, often cited as the architect of the law as far as, uh, as far as human instrumentation is concerned. Let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17. And I want you to see what the scripture says about Moses, the very figure who gave the law, to whom God gave the law and by whom the law was passed uh, unto, uh, unto men. Uh, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found, what? Grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. We spoke about David a moment or two ago. We think about David's son Solomon, chapter 3 of Proverbs. Solomon speaks in chapter 3 of Proverbs and uh, verse 34. And notice the statement of the sage. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 34, he says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he, the Lord, giveth grace unto the lowly, unto the humble. So do dispensationists teach that there is more than one way of salvation? Absolutely not. Always, in every dispensation, grace is the operating factor in a man's salvation. The second thing that uh, we are accused of 
is, and this is a fancy word, antinomianism, meaning against the law or living above or without law. And the understanding of the critic is that a dispensationalist teaches that since we are no longer under the law, that we're therefore lawless, that we can live, we believe that we can live however we please, that we have no obligation to keep the moral code of God. But remember the house rules. Remember we talked about house rules. While some things change, some things remain the same. So let's go back to our family analogy. In a house, in a home, a child is taught from the earliest days to honor his father and his mother. But his bedtime may be, certainly in primary school years, six o'clock or seven o'clock in the evening. When that child comes up into late teenage years, into adulthood, he still has to honor his father and his mother. But certainly the time he's in adulthood, he's not being tucked up in bed at seven o'clock at night. Uh, he can go to bed at whatever time he wants. So something has changed and something remains the same. Okay, And that's a good illustration of dispensationalism and how the law relates to it. You see, Noah and David and Paul all understood that a murderer ought to be put to death. All three of those figures taught that. Noah was instructed that in Genesis chapter 9. David understood it whenever he was chastised of Nathan. And uh, Paul speaks about it uh, in uh, Romans uh, chapter 7, I think it is. So anyway, um, so all three understood that a murderer is worthy of death, that, that murder is a capital sin and crime. Now, in each of their dispensations, each one of those men taught that. But you think about this. Noah. Was Noah circumcised? You're all looking at me like cows looking at a new gate. Was Noah circumcised? No. Noah lived prior to circumcision. He lived prior to Abraham. Noah wasn't circumcised. Was David circumcised? King David. Yes, he was. You know the answer. Go ahead and say yes. David was circumcised. Was David baptized? No. Was Paul circumcised? Yes, he was. Was Paul baptized? Yes, he was. So you have those three men uh, having very different experiences of their, uh, of their fellowship with the Lord. Noah's not circumcised, not baptized. David's circumcised, not baptized. And uh, uh, Paul is both circumcised and baptized. But there's, as far as the law goes, as far as the law of murder goes, all three men agree that a murderer deserves to be put to death, that a capital punishment ought to be applied to the sin of murder. So the idea that somehow because we're not under the law that we scrap the moral code and we live throwing caution to the wind and we live uh, under license rather than under law is really a, a very devious and, and false accusation. Now, the dispensation of grace or the church age does not do away with the moral duties of the law. Look in Romans chapter 13 for a moment. Now, this is quite interesting. Romans chapter 13. And I want you to see what happens in Romans chapter 13. In verse 8. Notice what it says. Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. But he that loveth another hath fulfilled 
the law. And of course, the Lord Jesus uh, taught that, that we're to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, and soul, and that uh, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 9, he says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay, now he leaves out in that, those are the commandments that, uh, the, the latter half of the commandments, and he leaves out the commandment, interestingly, uh, of the Sabbath day. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us we're not to judge church age believers uh, in matters of the Sabbath. Look in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, Having spoiled Christ, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, a holiday, or of the new moon, the feast days, they're all lunar, or of the Sabbath days. And you notice that days is italicized, that were being added by the translators, so it's quite literally, or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things uh, to come. So the Sabbath day commandment is not repeated by Paul, and he tells us that we're not to judge one another pertaining to that particular law. Why is that? Because the Sabbath day command is for the Jew under the dispensation of the law and should be understood as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant the same way that the rainbow is a sign of the Noahic uh, Covenant and circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. Let's go to chapter 31 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 31, very important passage when we're speaking about the Sabbath because we have folks today in the church who are like the Judaizers of old, who would like to bring you under Sabbatarianism and would like to lock you into certain legal requirements on a Sunday, Sunday now being the supposed Christian Sabbath, and that's only true if you're a placement theologian. Uh, and so they want to tie you into all of these legal requirements. And uh, here we see that actually that's a misunderstanding of Scripture and an abuse of Scripture. Verse 12 of chapter 31 of Exodus, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto whom? Who does it say to speak unto? You can speak to me. Read the children of Israel. I knew you could read. I knew you could do that. It is hard. There was big words there. The word off was difficult, wasn't it? They, so speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath shall ye, ye shall keep. Now notice what God says. For it is a sign between me and you. Who's the you? Contextually, who's you? The children of Israel. Throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you, to Israel. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. It's kind of interesting to me that people who are Sabbatarian want you to keep all the Sabbath day laws, but without the penalty associated with the breaking of those laws. Nobody's ever stoned to death out the back end of a church in Northern Ireland these days. 
But if you broke the Sabbath in the Old Testament time, that was the consequence. For whosoever doth any work, any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, notice, he shall surely be put to death. Now, what kind of work are we talking? If you strike a match, that was against the Sabbath day. If you ignited a fire, that was against the Sabbath day. That works great if you live in nice, hot Israel. It doesn't work so well if you're living in freezing cold Northern Ireland. You can't light your fire. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Notice what it says. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. Notice what it says. For a perpetual, what? Covenant. It is a sign. The Sabbath is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Look at chapter 20 and verse 12 of Exodus. Chapter 20 and verse 12. You see, if you don't understand your Bible dispensationally, you'll be in trouble here. Uh, Exodus, uh, sorry, not Exodus chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Notice what God says now. Moreover, also I give them, the children of Israel, my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. So according to these scriptures, why was the Sabbath day given? It was given as a sign between God and Israel to mark the exodus from Egypt. It was a sign of his covenant with Israel made through Moses, which was a covenant unique and peculiar to the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the church. Now, there is a principle in Scripture that one day in seven we should rest. There is a principle that in one day in seven we should worship the Lord. But beyond that, there is no legislation laid down in Scripture for you as a church-age believer to obey. The Lord's Day, as we call it, is not the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is from 6 o'clock on Friday evening till 6 o'clock on Saturday evening, from sundown to sundown. That's the Sabbath day. And there are two different days. But the idea that we're living without law, that we're absolutely free from all moral responsibility, is a mischievous accusation and a slander against dispensationalists. All right, here's the next one. Dispensationalists believe that the Sermon on the Mount is not for today. Well, do we believe that? No, we don't. All Scripture is given by inspiration with God. All of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, we wouldn't say that the first two chapters of the Bible, which deal with the age of innocence, are of no value today. I preach out of those chapters. You've been here long enough under my ministry. I've been here long enough my ministry for you to hear me preach out of those chapters probably several times already. Uh, we wouldn't say about those scriptures that pertain to Noah uh, or to Abraham or to Moses. 
the dispensation of, of, of conscience or promise or government uh, or law. You, you know, we wouldn't say those scriptures have no value. Uh, we wouldn't discount the writings of the law and of the prophets, and or indeed those history sections of the Old Testament of Kings and Chronicles. So why would we suddenly discount the Sermon on the Mount? Now, here's the thing. Dispensationalists have preached many valuable things on the Sermon on the Mount. They have application uh, to today, and they have profit for believers uh, today. You know, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. Uh, God showers his goodness on the just and on the unjust. Uh, God sees what is done in secret. These are all truths that are taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, not so many months ago, I was teaching Sunday nights out of the Sermon on the Mount, preaching the gospel right here, out of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what a man treasures in his heart reveals his heart. Uh, you know, no man can serve two masters and so on. Those are universal truths right throughout the sermon. Now, that's not the same as saying in its strictest sense that that sermon was directed to church-age believers. It wasn't. It was addressed to the Jews. How do we know it wasn't addressed to church-age believers? Who did Jesus preach it to? <laughs> you guys are struggling tonight. Who did he preach it to? You know the answer to this. Who did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount to? Did he preach it to the church at Corinth? Did he preach it to the churches of Galatia? Who did he preach the Sermon on the Mount to? Let me ask you another question. When did he preach the Sermon on the Mount? Before Pentecost or after Pentecost? Before. When is the church born? After after Pentecost. So Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount in what dispensation? The dispensation of the law. And who is he preaching it to? Who is under the law? Hallelujah. We got there in the end. You're very shy. You knew the answer all along. He's preaching to the Jews in the most Jewish of the Gospels. You know, you think about it, the church wasn't even in existence when he preached that sermon. In fact, later on he says, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, which is a big problem if you believe in the covenant of grace and the covenant of works because you believe that the church was in existence from Adam onward. And Jesus comes along and he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He speaks about it as something yet future. He doesn't say, I have built my church and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. He speaks, he speaks future. So he's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to Israel. He's bringing kingdom truths to Israel in that passage. The whole tenor of the Sermon on the Mount is, how does one enter into the kingdom? What's the standard of righteousness? Your righteousness will have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. What does that do? It does what the law is intended to do. It throws you into Christ. And it causes you to appeal for God's mercy. So its purpose was to show them that they were not fit to enter the kingdom, which was announced at that time to be at hand. So is the Sermon on the Mount 
for today. We can make it apply to today, and we have done. But in its strictest sense, in the strictest hermeneutical sense, it was preached to Jews before the church age with the purpose of showing where the righteousness of the kingdom came from. Dispensationalists say that the cross is God's plan B. The cross is God's follow-up plan. You so so they, we, they say that the main program of God was for the kingdom and that the cross was only necessitated because Israel rejected Christ's offer of the kingdom and rejected Christ as their Messiah. And this is the what if question. What if Israel, during the time of Christ, had have accepted the kingdom? They had have accepted Christ as their king. What is, if? Well, the fact is that God knew beforehand all about the what if. He knew who would betray Christ. He knew how Christ would be betrayed. He knew that the people of Israel would reject the Savior. And he knew that he would be sent to the cross. So he knew it all beforehand. In fact, Scripture teaches and dispensationalists believe that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So they will then say, well, then the offer of the kingdom by Jesus, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is disingenuous that Jesus is somehow being insincere in making that offer. Well, this is very rich criticism from people who believe that as the supposed elect of God, they were forechosen from the beginning of time and then preach an offer of salvation to whosoever will, believing that whosoever will has no ability to believe. That would be, that's a disingenuous gospel. But leaving that obvious duplicity to one side, the fact is that God knew ahead of time of Israel's rejection. And that in no way discounts the earnestness of his offer of the kingdom to them. God's offer of the kingdom was perfectly sincere. In fact, the fact that he knew they would reject it is not a reflection upon him, but upon the Jewish people of that time. So that offer was made based on a condition, repentance. Israel never met the condition. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They never met that condition. And when they failed to meet that condition, then the kingdom did not come uh, and it wasn't given to them uh, as, as, uh, as offered. So there's, there's no plan B here. God always knew that Jesus was going to the cross. Always knew that. Dispensationalism then, they say, is a new teaching. Now this, to me, is the most tedious complaint of them all. Okay? It is the most tedious complaint of them all. You see, they'll try and tell you that dispensationalism came along as a consequence of brethrenism, J.N. Darby in the 18th century, uh, in the 19th century, sorry, and Schofield in the early 20th century, the Moody Bible Institute, Dallas Theological Seminary. These people all introduced dispensationalism to the world, and dispensationalism is a theological Johnny-come-lately. Is that really so? Well, we've already seen from our very first lesson that dispensationalism uh, was, being, uh, was being formulated uh, in the very early days of the Reformation. We talked about uh, Pierre Poiret's scheme. Remember, not Poirot, but Poiret's scheme, whereby he took the various ages of man and tried to apply that to the Scriptures. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a perfect dispensational system. 
But it was an attempt to do much the same thing as dispensationalism now teaches. And so, uh, so they, they make this declaration that dispensationalism is a new teaching, uh, as though Reformed doctrine was the teaching of the church from time immemorial. In fact, uh, the Reformed doctrine has come about with the Reformer after Reformer reforming it. It's a doctrine that has evolved over many hundreds of years. And justification by faith, if you're going to levy that criticism, then justification by faith as a doctrine would have been a new teaching in 1517. So you would have said, well, that's a new teaching. You can't accept it as a new teaching. And they'll say, but justification by faith is found in the Word of God. And so it is. But so is dispensationalism. It holds up to the Scriptures. Now, let me close this week session by highlighting some of the differences and uh, advantages of the dispensational approach to our understanding of Scripture. All right, so let's think about advantages of the dispensational system. Uh, number one, it coincides with the way that the Bible was produced, okay? That is, uh, all revelation was not given at once. Remember, Adam had no Bible, uh, you know, Noah had no Bible, uh, Abraham had no Bible, uh, even Moses uh, had no Bible uh, until he wrote the first five books, and then he had only five books, and so it continues. There's a progressive uh, revelation, all right? So, dispensationalism helps us to understand where people were and what particular place they were in history and what revelation they had at their disposal. It recognizes the purpose of each writer to serve his own generation. Then it reflects this progressive unfolding of God's plan for the ages. Look in Mark chapter 4, if you will, because God's plan for the ages involves Israel, involves the church, and involves the Gentile world. Mark chapter 4. Notice what Jesus says of kingdom truth. Chapter 4 of Mark, verse 26. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth of herself, fruit of herself, First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. Uh, but when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle, because harvest is come. So there's the principle of progressive unfolding that dispens of truth that dispensationalism recognizes. First uh, the blade, then the ear, then the full corn uh, in the ear. And, and so the idea is, again, of progressive revelation. And dispensationalism recon recognizes that. So what you get with covenant theology is you just have the fall, covenant of works dead, covenant of grace from now on. There's no progression. There's no plan for the ages. It's just one uh, homogenous whole. And it strengthens our defense of the Scriptures. If you understand dispensationalism, it strengthens our defense of the Scriptures. It has an apologetical value. 
you know, harmonizes perfectly uh, contradictions, apparent contradictions, and helps us to understand problems. For example, you know, you, you go to the imprecatory Psalms, those Psalms in which David calls down the wrath of God upon his enemies, and he's, he's absolutely burning with righteous anger, and he's asking God to drop them alive into the pit, into the pit and all the rest of it. And he's, and he's calling down all of this wrath upon his enemies. Uh, but then we see that as opposed to Jesus teaching that we're to love our enemies. Well, how do we reconcile that? We reconcile it by means of dispensationalism. We see that Jesus is now introducing a new law, a new way of handling things. Um, you know, it has a value for contention, uh, you know, every Christian has to be a contender for the faith. Jude says that in verse 3 of his epistle, that every one of us should know how to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You know, you think about the Sabbath day question. If, if, you're, a, you know, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I come along to you and I say, listen, you should be worshipping on a Saturday. Saturday's the day of worship, not Sunday. People always worshipped on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day we ought to worship, not Sunday. How do you answer that? Because he can give you scripture after scripture after scripture that tells you that the Sabbath is holy. You're to keep the Sabbath. You know, and we've read some of those scriptures tonight. How are we going to answer this person who tells us we ought to be worshipping on a Saturday and not on a Sunday? Any suggestions? What? Different dispensation. Completely different dispensation. If you don't understand dispensationalism, you'll be all at sea with that particular argument. Then it enforces the basic laws of sound interpretation. Uh, you know, with its literal, grammatical, and historical approach, every passage is interpreted primarily in the light of the person or persons to whom it was originally addressed, what it meant to him, what it understood to them. Uh, now, spiritual applications may grow out of this primary interpretation, but dispensationalism is the only method of interpretation that carefully observes the fundamental law of, uh, of uh, this fundamental law of interpretation, literal, grammatical, historical approach. And then it causes the believer to understand the times in which he lives. Helps to understand the times. Uh, Richard Mao, a reformed theologian, he's not a friend of ours in that, theologically in that sense. He said this, 100 years ago, as dispensationalists anticipated the beginning of a new century, they were not optimistic. They expected wars and rumors of wars. They feared the coming of Antichrist. In contrast, mainline Protestantism and liberal theologians expressed a deep faith in historical progress. They saw the kingdom of God expanding in its influence. The 20th century was to be the Christian century. War and poverty and famine would be virtually eliminated. Now I ask, who had a better sense of what was going to happen in the 20th century? It seems obvious that Protestant liberalism was simply wrong in its predictions, whereas much of the dispensationalist scenario was vindicated. Why have we not given the dispensationalists more credit for their insights? Who was better equipped to prepare their children for the now much heralded demise of enlightenment optimism? The dispensationalists 
or their cultured despisers? The answer seems to me to point clearly in the direction of vindication for the dispensationalist's view of history. Because of those theological instincts, as well as their very real spiritual gifts, that I raise up two cheers for the older dispensationalists. Well, that's a very candid confession. Basically what he's saying is, when it came to the, to the times, the dispensationalists got it right. That's what this Reformed theologian is saying. That we got it right, that our forefathers, spiritual forefathers, got it right. And then finally, dispensationalism gives the greatest motivation to Christian service. Why? Because we believe the Lord is at hand. Because we believe, and, and we're living in the last days. You know, you, you've heard it preached from this pulpit. You've heard it said in prayer meetings, Lord, we're in the last days. The last of the last days. How can we say that? How can we have that kind of confidence that we're living in the last of the last days, that we're the generation on earth prior, just prior to the coming of the Lord? How can we be so sure about that? Because of dispensationalism. Because we understand God's plan for the ages. Because we see how it is laid out in the book of God. And we realize where we are located on the timeline of prophecy. That we're in the Laodicean age of church history. So that gives us impetus, motivation. If the Lord is coming, we ought to busy ourselves serving him. If the Lord could appear at any moment, and that's our blessed hope, then we ought to be active, sharing the gospel, uh, standing up for what's right. Paul puts it this way, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, knowing that the tribulation is around the corner, we persuade men. George Ladd, who again is not a dispensationalist, speaking of dispensationalists, wrote this, it is doubtful if there has been any other circle of men who have done more by their influence in preaching, teaching, and writing to promote a love for Bible study, a hunger for the deeper Christian life, a passion for evangelism, and zeal for missions in the history of American Christianity. The fact of the matter is, friends, that you will get a better understanding of your Bible if you would uh, understand dispensationalism. You'd be less susceptible to confusion. You'd be less susceptible to delusion and to deceit. You'd have a greater hold on the times in which you live, and, uh, and you would have a greater hold on dispensational truth as a whole. And so I want to commend these thoughts to you. You know, go and study. Go, you know, if you, if, you want, if you want help with this, if you want to come back to me and say, Pastor, I'd like to look at this more, come and speak to me. I'll point you to some books that you can read and you can look at it and you can assess it for yourselves. And I highly recommend that you do that, that you give careful consideration uh, in the hope that every one of us will learn to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Listen, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts. And I hope that the next time Martin asks, what are the seven dispensations? There will be a swift and correct response to that question.